Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We are through our first week down under in Melbourne at the Australian Open. Plenty of action to look back at, plenty of action to look forward to. And also, Mike, an awesome guest to look forward to this week, uh, someone you had a privilege of, of chatting with and someone who's been on the podcast before. Yeah, we welcome back uh, special guest Daniela Hontikova, former top player in both singles and doubles on the WTA, uh, to bring us up to speed on what she's been up to lately and share some details on her own Real DNA podcast. So nice to have her back. And uh, here we are one week through the Happy Slam, which is finally starting to feel happy again now that we're letting the tennis do the talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and Daniela Hontikova actually is one of those players that I always associate with the Aussie Open. She had that uh, incredible semifinal run back in 2008 where she was up six love, two love against Anna Ivanovic. And then things turned, unfortunately for her, in her opponent's favor. But uh, always a player I enjoyed watching back in the day. And uh, and someone I could say I grew up kind of watching uh, were similar in, in age. So uh, great to have her back this week. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, plenty of action in terms of looking at what's transpired on the women's side and the men's side. Yeah, it, it's funny, uh, such an illustrious career for Daniela Hantukova. It felt like a, a perfectly long one. It's not like she left the game too early, and yet she's still just uh, 38 years old now. And uh, you know what? Before we get to all the action in Melbourne, why don't we listen in uh, to your conversation with Daniela Hantukova? Our special guest on today's episode of the podcast is one of the finest athletes to ever come from Slovakia. She held a career high ranking of number five in both singles and doubles on the WTA. Twice won the title in Indian Wells, as well as making the semifinals of the Aussie Open in 2008. Now she's the host of the Real DNA podcast, as well as a respected tennis analyst. Daniela Hantikova, welcome back to Matchpoint Canada. Hi there, thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. This is the third time now, so you've become a a regular on our podcast. Our listeners are going to expect a a yearly update from you. I hope that's okay. (laughs) Of course, I'm a a big, big fan of of your country, and I only have the fondest memories uh, every time I come to Canada. And actually, I have a lot of uh, friends coming from your part of the world, so that's why probably... I'm always keen to to come back. And talk well, to you. <laughs> we love to hear that. Um, when we first had you on the podcast in, in 2020, you were just starting your Real DNA podcast, which has had a wide variety of guests, both inside and outside of the tennis world. Uh, I see the last episode was from uh, last summer sometime. So can you bring us up to speed on what's keeping you busy these days and what can we expect in terms of a continuation of the podcast? Yeah, the great news is that it's it's coming all back uh, this season. I, I took a little bit of time uh, away from it because I wanted to rethink the strategy and, um, you know, the guests uh, that I wanted to invite and what kind of subjects and topics we were uh, going to be discussing. Um, so that's all in the making. And I'm going to talk to my first guest of this season actually next week. And also I was just so busy with my TV work and I felt like after the season was... Uh, was done that I just wanted to take some time off and spend spend it with my loved ones. It's more work than you think doing a podcast, I, I feel, <laughs> at least for me, for me personally. Like when I first started with my co-host Ben, who couldn't be here today, unfortunately, I thought, oh, this shouldn't be too bad. One episode a week, you know, in the evenings when I have time. But then all the preparation to go into it and getting the right guests and reaching out, it was way more than I expected. Absolutely. One episode a week. I'm, I'm a long time gone from that, that kind of ambitious uh, idea. Um, no, like you said, it's, 
you know, one thing is to listen to uh, to it once it's done, and it's uh, it's such a nice feeling, and especially when um, both of us we get you know those nice reviews and how much um, the listeners appreciate it. But yes, it's a it's a it's a lot of work, especially getting the guests um, on board, and um, that's where it was starting to be tricky with my busy schedule, and then normally the guests would be quite busy as well so um that's why i i decided this season i'm gonna do less but you know more quality product and really go deep into some things that uh, that i want to discuss with my guests but like you said i um, totally agree it's uh it's a lot of hard work but at the same time it's um i i do enjoy that like uh, you know to be in charge of something from the start until the final product it's it's pretty cool yeah i feel the same way and just to see the growth year to year which we've experienced and and we started just a year or two before you so it really starts to pick up over time as well i feel like are there any guests you can tell us about this year your first guest or is it all top secret at this point uh well it's not really because most of them are going to me be my friends and i and I thought, you know, because I traveled so much and I'm so lucky to have amazing friends from, from my tennis days, I thought, why don't we dig into the cultural aspects of, you know, traveling uh, the tennis tour. And so basically I'm going to use all my friendships and compare different cultures. Uh, we're going to start with India. So you can just guess who's going to be the guest. And then we go, you know, to Japan, Germany, um, the states hopefully someone from Canada as well so just to kind of um, see see the cultures and and um, the countries and cities from my guest point of view and also maybe how much they had to adjust being on the tour or doing their sports uh, because of you know our different mentalities and we'll just compare that and um I, I thought I'd give it this uh, cultural kick this year. I like it. I like it. Now, in terms of Canadian culture, hockey is so big over here, of course. And you've had a couple of hockey players on your podcast, Marion Hossa, Peter Bondra. And uh, I just Maybe came... Wayne would be the obvious choice. <laughs> right? So I just... Yeah, Wayne Gretzky, right? I just came in from flooding my backyard rink for the kids so they can have the ice ready this afternoon. Um, big hockey fan, of course. Are, are you a hockey fan? And are there any other hockey players that you'd like to talk to on your podcast? Uh, yeah, obviously it's our number one sport, just like for you guys. And I think we always have that uh, thing in common that about hockey, we can talk for hours. And yeah, I mean, that's where my friends, they've been so cool that, uh, like you said, I had already a couple of them um, on it because they're just so funny. And um, yeah, pretty much with them, I didn't even prepare what we were going to discuss because there's always so much to talk about. And uh, yeah, I mean, if I could pick one uh, dream guest, that obviously would be Wayne Gretzky. So um, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully he's listening to you guys now. <laughs> well, I would love that. If you do get to speak to him, tell him the Canadian podcast wants to talk to him too, okay? I will do. <laughs> uh, I think your first uh, tennis guest, maybe even the first guest you ever had on the podcast was Darren Cahill. And uh, Darren, of course, has had so much success with Simona Halep. And now we see the early returns as he's working with Amanda Anisimova as well. What, what is it about Darren that seems to just click for him, no matter who he's coaching on the tour? Oh, his personality. He's, I mean, he's such a great guy. I know he is always going to be there 24-7 for me. And, you know, you, not too many people um, I have, um, you know, on those terms um, back from my tennis days. And I know he's going to be there forever for me and the uh, same via versa. And he's just such a cool person to be around the way he looks at life is just so positive and uh, always upbeat. He brings so much energy to the practice court, to the gym, 
uh, traveling. It's just a pure joy to be near him. So I think that's where uh, all of his players play so well because he just makes them so comfortable. Um, he makes them happy outside of the court, which, um, you know, with most of the players he had, whether it's Leighton, Simona, um, you know, Andre, you know, they're such a huge talent and stars of our game that with them, if they are mentally tuned in, then they, on the court, they can really achieve, achieve whatever they want. Did you ever work with him either officially or unofficially during your playing career? With? Uh, Darren Cahill. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I, I was part of the Adidas program. So I went to Vegas a couple of times and um, yeah, o only thing he couldn't coach me if I was playing another um, Adidas player, but yeah, we had some fun, fun rounds. Um, actually, I was his first player that he did the coach on court thing. I mean, that was the most hilarious thing ever. I think he forgot he had the mic on. Um, <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was just so, so much fun. And um, yeah, but even then after we, we stopped, we always uh, kept in touch and um, yeah, he's, he's one of my best friends actually. Did you find success right off the bat when you had a new coach or did it take some time to develop that sort of chemistry and see the results come? Yeah, that's a very good question. It, I think it varies. Um, sometimes, you know, the click can happen right away and suddenly you have all these great results because the coach is telling you not necessarily new things, but in a fresh way. But I always say that happens mainly because of the coach before. Um, so normally I would say it takes, if you decide to work on something um, or start with a new coach, I always advise even the young players, give it at least two, three months. You're not going to be able to tell anything after a couple of weeks. Um, you know, just like in a relationship, you have to give it time to, to grow or, you know, to to kind of, um, you start to understand that maybe that's not not the right choice for you. But, um, you know, after a few days or a few weeks, you can't really tell. Get, getting ready to speak with you today, I was looking back, just refreshing my memory on your career accomplishments. And it shocked me to see that it's almost 20 years now since your first Indian Wells title. Uh, does it feel like that one was was a long time ago to you? Um, again, great question. Um, sometimes it feels like it's even farther away than that um you know especially when i'm not commentating when i'm just taking my time off and living a normal life i feel like sometimes i even forget that i was a tennis player at some point but then like as soon as i get to the tournaments or i, I go and you know hit few balls um that feeling is right back and i feel like i never left so it's it's like mixed feelings um like i said if i'm playing golf or or somewhere on the beach or just having a regular daily routines um maybe the only thing that reminds me that I was a tennis player is that um yeah when I go to gym I can work out on quite high levels and <laughs> and that's pretty much it so as far as like you know asking me how I played there or there it's it's starting to be tougher and tougher to remember and I remember when you know the legends of the game were telling me this I'm like oh come on how can you forget you know how you played in Melbourne or in Indian Wells and I'm now I'm getting to that stage <laughs> My memory shot since I turned 40, so it, it only gets worse, let me tell you. <laughs> I want to ask you about having success like that when you were young. You also made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open at a very young age. We saw two young finalists at the U.S. Open last fall in Emma Raducanu and, and of course, Canadian Leila Annie Fernandez. And they've still got a lot of growth to experience with their games, of course. How, how tough is it to have a big win or a deep result at a big tournament when you're barely out of your teenage years? 
Well, um, it's a it's a it's a nice problem to have, but it can be also very challenging because I, I'm a strong believer that you get the momentum only once when you start, and you better you know surf that way for as long as you can. So, like in Emma's case, seeing her changing coaches so many times right after US Open, you you don't you don't play around with things like that. Like you stick with whatever works. You you put keep putting the hard work in because you just never know when you when you're gonna lose that and you know, once the tour starts to figure you, you figure you out, obviously all the coaches, players will talk about you. In a few months before you know it, everyone kind of starts to understand how to play against you. So it's so important to use those first few months. Like, uh, for example, me, when I won Indian was I worked extremely hard throughout the entire season. I never relaxed until the end. And we just kept doing the same things and better with, uh, with Nigel, my coach. Uh, Nigel Sears back then and he was so good at you know keeping me really focused just mostly on the tennis part because you know it's it's a circle and um, you know one player comes and goes the next one comes in and you you have to use that momentum and that's where all those great legends of our games uh, like Hingis um, you know Kleister Justine uh, I mean Serena Venus Lindsay when when they had that momentum they were extremely focused on what they had to do back then social media was not nearly anything like it is today and i looked back at my first interview i did with you for a uh, an article back in 2009 and i asked you what kind of changes you'd like to see in the sport and you said less media on the younger players would be a smart move and we saw last year how naomi osaka was affected by the media and she's still very young any suggestions for what can be done to help players, younger players, better prepare for that part of life as a professional tennis player? Because it definitely seems like mental health is at the forefront now of, of everyone's minds. We're talking about it more. So what positive changes maybe can come with that to help our young tennis players? Well, to me, I have a very strong opinion on that. And it's not a rocket science because, you know, we are where the energy goes. So if you're going to spend, you know, hours on social media and, and doing all of that, you can't be as a good player as you can potentially be. So to me, absolutely, if I'm the agent of, say, um, any, you know, superstar of our games, there is no way I would let them do the social media. It's, uh, I understand it's a commitment to the sponsors, but that's where the agents need to step in, the parents, the coaches, and just really protect the players. I never forget the lesson I got from um virginia wade um back in eastbourne it was the year i was doing really well i just won indian wells i think i, I made it to the quarters of wimbledon but it was the tournament before in eastbourne so i i was kind of a big deal i guess in england especially working with nigel and one morning i was reading the papers and i was on the back back um, page um like a full, a full article so i was so proud of myself and virginia came to to my table and she goes like what are you doing I'm like, oh, I'm just reading the morning news. She's like, no, you're reading an article about yourself. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, I hope that is the last time you've done that. Why, that wise was, words of advice. Uh, because she says anything you read about yourself, it's, it's, it's hardly ever the reality. It's either, you know, too big of a deal or the, and then it gets too negative. Like only you know what, you, you know what you're doing and only 
you're the one that's gonna look in the mirror at the end of the day and uh, whatever the media says whatever the press says that's their you know their uh, their job but you should not be reading any of that and that's pretty much when i when i stopped reading yeah good advice good advice it's tough for kids these days they grow up with it like i didn't grow up with the cell phone and twitter and all that social media so it's easier i think for me to set it aside but for a generation that's you know used to having it around since day one it's kind of hard to turn off but again it's the choices we make so if you know, if um, the parents are, you know, really strict on that and they explain the kids, you know, why not to do it, I don't see a reason why it should be that difficult. I mean, if I don't have a problem to turn off my phone for a week and I'm completely fine with it. My oldest child is eight. I'm going to wait at least the next 10 years before I bother getting him a cell phone. Yes. <laughs> to go from the younger players, I have a question now for some of the older players. Uh, you joked with me last time that when you were in your 20s, you said, if I'm still playing past 30, I want my friends to kick me off the court. We've got two players who are not playing currently, but they're now 40 in Roger Federer and Serena Williams. And we hope they're able to get back healthy and, and resume the, the tail end of their careers. Do you have any inside info on those two? Or even if you don't, what do you feel they can both still accomplish if they're healthy and their bodies will cooperate with them? Well, that's a big if, if they are healthy, because we know it just gets harder and harder. But um, I do not have any any inside info. It's just uh, remarkable to see that they still want to play. Um, and at, at the age they are at, what, what they've achieved. Um, I think the idea we had, and that's where Roger and Serena were so good to, to change that, because I'm kind of the same generation. All of us thought, OK, anything after 30, that's just embarrassing. But you know, with the physios knowledge and the rehab we have these days, and and the fitness programs, uh, it's becoming it's becoming normal now. So I think, with me personally, it was in my head. I, I feel like I could be still playing now, just uh, just uh, just like Serena. So I think it was it was for them such a huge step to change that setup, and they realized, hold on a second, I'm, I'm still winning these slams. Why why should I stop now? Just because. That's what the generation before us did. Be great. Selfishly, I want to see them both come back and have one last run at a major, but who knows? There's so much talent out there right now. Uh, I want to end with just a question or two about the Aussie Open that's going on right now. Um, you mentioned to me you're not down there this year and having an extended break, which is something you could never have back when you were playing. But as you're following the tournament, have there been any results that have uh, surprised you so far? Well, just because we mentioned the age, it's so cool to see Sorana, Kirstea and Alize Cornet still doing so well because, you know, those are girls from my generation, even though a little bit younger. And uh, I have to say, if uh, Darren keeps continuing uh, working with Anisimova, I know they are on a trial period now. I think she's going to have a great season. She's already playing well down under. So that uh, next matchup with Barty, that's going to be, I think, one of the matches of the tournament for, for now. Um, and uh, yeah, Sasha, Daniel, they're all playing great tennis. Um, so obviously so much easier to kind of get an idea what's what's going to happen in the second win on the men's side uh, compared to, to, to the women's part. I'm going to put you on the spot with my last question just for fun. And don't worry if you get these picks wrong, we'll just erase them and edit them out. <laughs> Who would you pick right now as your uh, women's and men's champion down under? Uh, I think I go for Paula Badosa. And Daniel Medvedev. 
Very good. Yeah, Medvedev looks. I'm right. I'm going to listen to this one. <laughs> Medvedev looks really tough to beat, and Bedosa had such a great year last year, and she's just continued. Don't worry, we can change it and voice edit to make your picks the right ones, okay? <laughs> Perfect. Sounds good. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's uh, so easy and, and wonderful to chat with you, and uh, we hope you'll come back and looking forward to a Canadian culture episode on the Real DNA podcast. Well, if your listeners have any suggestions, I, I don't think we can go bigger than Wayne, but uh, hey, we, we need a plan B because <laughs> most likely, I don't know how, how this is going to happen. And uh, yeah, it was great to be back. And uh, for sure, once, once a year, that's a promise. <laughs> Sounds good. Talk to you soon. There you have it, Mike's interview with Daniela Hantukova, um, career high of number five. And it's interesting, some of these players who achieve just so much so early in their careers. And she was, of course, one of them. And uh, it's funny when you're asking her about it. And now it seems like when she's not commentating, tennis is just not top of mind. And it feels like ancient history almost. Yeah, such a seamless transition for her. When we spoke to her last time, I asked her if she missed playing tennis whatsoever. And it was the quickest no I've ever heard from a retired player. She was so happy with with what she was doing. And uh, it's kind of nice to relate to her now as a, as a podcaster. You know, we're sort of mm -hmm. on like even footing. And I remember when she was starting Real DNA Podcast, she had asked me a few questions before we we started recording uh, just picking my brain about what it's like to run a podcast. And for once, I kind of felt like, oh, yeah, sure. I, I'm the expert here. Like, I know what I'm talking <laughs> about, you know. And so yeah. uh, she's done great things with that podcast. And I, I think it's cool that she's sort of slowing it down and going to make it less frequent in uh, 2022 and also shift to maybe a bit less of a tennis focus and more, as she said, on a cultural focus, um, which is great. I mean, there's enough tennis podcasts, solely tennis podcasts out there. Um, so this could definitely bring something else to the table. Yeah, and certainly just uh, crossing over uh, to different sports, as she mentioned, and, and speaking to different athletes, getting their perspective on, on their respective sport would be certainly interesting uh, to hear. And I've, I've always enjoyed the couple of episodes that I have listened to. And you can tell she's, she's great at building a rapport and connection with her guests. And this obviously was just such a likable player on tour, um, one of those personalities who seemed to, uh, you know, develop so many friendships uh, during her time on tour which is sometimes not the case at all um in in an individual sport yeah well liked and that certainly helps her to get guests on her podcast because she's on good terms with so many of her former peers and and fellow tennis players and uh i i think we need to challenge ourselves now uh to get wayne gretzky on matchpoint canada before she gets wayne gretzky on the real dna podcast well Location-wise, we should have better access to him, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, maybe, maybe. He's not um, busy at all, right? I mean, no, he's he's been to tennis matches before. I think he has an interest. Maybe if he shows up at the National Bank Open this summer, something is possible. Uh, you can always dream big. Um, but ha having said that, I, I think we should get to the tennis and obviously what's unfolded at the Australian Open through one week of play, and maybe we could look back at some of our predictions where we've gone completely wrong where we've been right. And I, I think a good place to start is on the women's side. And while we have had upsets um, for me, just the standout player, the player who's looked every bit, the strongest and every bit, the world number one has been the home favorite Ash Barty. She's just been fantastic through her first uh, four matches, cruising into the uh, quarterfinals, beating an Amanda Anisimova to book that place in the final eight. 
And she had a run of 63 consecutive holds of serve, dating back to her tournament victory until Anisimova finally broke that serve. But, I mean, that, that's an unbelievable statistic. Well, look, she's not seeming to feel that pressure from uh, being the Australian favorite at the hometown favorite for a slam that she's never won before and uh, cruising through the draw so far without dropping a set. I really thought Anisimova was going to give her a bit more of a challenge. I was thinking a three-setter there because the American looked so strong in uh, defeating uh, defending champion um, Naomi Osaka and her previous match against Belinda Bencic as well, not to mention that she had won a tournament coming into Melbourne uh, Mm. and seeming to have such great success with Darren Cahill. Um, who obviously I spoke with uh, Danielle Hantikova about, but Barty to me is living up to that number one seed, that number one ranking. And when I look at my pre-tournament uh, choices that Tennis Canada put us up to, Barty's the only woman left that I, I put on my board. So my dark horse of Svitolina flamed out early to Azarenka. Coco Goff also lost earlier than expected, and Leila Annie Fernandez, who we'll talk about later. So I'm really relying on Ash Barty to vindicate me here a little bit by... Uh, <laughs> hoisting the trophy in a week's time well good for you that you like properly have somebody left um considering that i lost my uh, pick as potential champion very early in this draw and i think we knew going in um that the two names that were being talked about as the favorites per se were Barty and Osaka. And I wanted to go not off the grid, but choose a different name. And I'm thinking who's playing the best tennis uh, post us open. And it was Annette Contivate in terms of her quality of tennis, what she did in 2021 with a few titles towards the end of the year, she started off strong, but uh, Clara Towson stunning her in the second round. That was certainly unexpected. So, so she falls and she's not one, you know, she's one of several uh, players. I think people were pegging as contenders to win it to go out early in this tournament. Spain's Garbina Muguruza losing to Elise Cornet early on. Uh, fellow Spaniard Paula Badosa is now out of this tournament. The one name I'm still clinging to, and they're actually playing as we're having this conversation, is my Cinderella story, American Danielle Collins. And she's one of a few Americans that have had just a great run in Melbourne playing Awesome tennis. Uh, She's found herself in the fourth round and she's a previous semifinalist, but she's one of several Americans who are playing well. We talked about Anisimova, of course, had the upset of Osaka and also Jessica Pagula is uh, back in the quarterfinals for a second consecutive year. So apparently the Americans feel very comfortable on this surface and it's not necessarily the ones we'd always expect because, as you mentioned, Coco Goff lost first round impossible to predict really isn't it i mean i think the next time tennis canada asks me for predictions i'm just gonna take a pass or let one of my three kids pick for me because they probably have as much chance of getting them right as i do but uh, the women's draw once again is just so much fun to watch unfold there's so many great matches to watch i mean even you look at kaya kanepi and the run that she's having um Mm -hmm. and, and you look i mean she's 36 years old now and you look back over the success in her career and it's not defined by obviously a major championship but She's made the quarterfinals at three of the four slams more than once. And here she is now with a great chance as we're recording this anyways. I believe she's still in the draw as we're recording. This could be stale, obviously, by the time it posts. But regardless, um, a nice run from the veteran there too. And to see Madison Keys continue a, a return to good form and really no reason why, why she shouldn't have. But, uh, you know, nice to kind of listen to her in post-match press talk about how she was putting too much pressure on herself. And it was her boyfriend, I believe, who said to her, hey, you've got to change something up here because this is just not sustainable for you long-term to put this much uh, stress on yourself tournament in 
and tournament out and she's playing more freely and having fun and all smiles and look at the great results that she's having. So happy to see that uh, for her, a very likable American, someone who's always very outspoken about mental health and women in sport and, uh, and just someone that you can rally behind. So, so I'm stoked for the last week to see what can happen, even though there are no Canadians in the women's draw mm-hmm. um, in singles or doubles, unfortunately, but uh, it's, it's been a blast so far in, in that side of, uh, of action. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued actually for that upcoming quarterfinal. Madison Keys, as you mentioned, playing amazing, and Barbara Krychikova, who to me is completely backing up the season that she produced in 2021. Of course, with the French Open title and the huge surge up the rankings, she opened the season in Sydney, making the finals, lost to Bedosa there, and uh, she's looked incredibly impressive through the first week in Melbourne. Um, dispatched Victoria Azarenka six two six two, and Vika had been playing really good tennis herself. So Krychikova, she hits such a smooth uh, effortless ball Madison Keys hits such a booming powerful ball I think that'll be a great quarterfinal and I'm going to give credit as well to Arena Sabalenka how hard is it to win three matches when you're combining over those three matches hitting I believe 39 double faults I think that that's honestly testament to how good her ground game is to to survive and overcome that type of a challenge on your serve yeah, she's lasted longer than I thought she was going to, to be perfectly honest. And, yeah. you know, maybe this is our segue into Leila Annie Fernandez, because when we saw her in that part of the draw, I thought, hey, that's the best place that the young Canadian could land, given the mm-hmm. troubles that Sabalenka's been having lately. Um, so for Sabalenka to keep going despite the serving woes, I don't know if that bodes well or not moving forward, but I think it's better than sort of expected. To look at the Canadians for a moment, um, Leila Annie Fernandez, I think we need to remind ourselves, of course, that she's just 19 years old. So much um, growing and development as a professional player on the court uh, to still go through. And disappointment because she came into her first round match against uh, the Australian uh, Madison Inglis as the favorite and the heavy favorite as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, her 24-year-old opponent who'd never won a main draw match at a slam. And, uh, and she went out rather meekly, unfortunately, in the scoreline in straight sense. Yeah, a bit of a puzzling result, I think, for for a lot of people. You know, as we said, looking into uh, the tournament and where she landed in the draw, we thought it, it carved out certainly a ni- nice path for her to probably get into the third round. And then we were actually looking at maybe a matchup with Kerber. Of course, Kai Kanepi took out Angelique Kerber in the first round. Um, but just one of those matches where things never really got rolling in the right direction. You fall behind in the scoreline, you're battling it, you you don't feel the ball, you you tell yourself, okay, I have to be more aggressive, the errors start piling up, your opponent gets a lot more confident, like credit to Madison Inglis, I thought she played well above her ranking and uh, just punching above her weight in that match, and she actually kept it up and carried that momentum over to the third round, so obviously a special tournament for her. I think she was probably a bit buoyed by the, the crowd as well in Australia, just feeding off their energy a little bit. But uh, for Fernandez, um, yeah, it it felt like uh, she never had momentum working in her favor. She was looking for solutions on court, as she said, impressed and just not finding them. And I asked her impressed if it was something maybe physically nagging her because she pulled out of that second event. She said, no, she was feeling good going into it. It was just a bad day at the office. Yeah, you could tell too many errors. And just as you mentioned, never looked comfortable out there. And it didn't work out for her in doubles either with Aaron Routliff, unfortunately. Those two made the third or fourth round at the U.S. Open last summer. Mm -hmm. uh, And they went out in the first round in straight sets as well. So that was unfortunate. But another learning experience for Layla Annie, who will be, uh, you know, back at it before we know it 
She mentioned to me earlier this year she is planning to go back to Mexico where she had so much success last year and the year before that too. So hopefully that will bring back some confident memories for her and other doubles results. Uh, and unfortunately for Gabby Dabrowski, who you can normally count on to make the second week of a major in doubles, in, in women's doubles or and or mixed doubles, uh, she bowed out early in both as well. And on the women's side, she's there without her regular partner, uh, Luisa Stefani, the two of them who had just a killer summer and, and back half of, of 2021. Uh, Stefani, who's still uh, rehabbing from that uh, really bad injury she sustained in the semis in New York uh, last fall, last summer. So I think once Gabby's back with her, I think we can expect, hopefully, that they're able to pick up where they left off. Always difficult when you're playing with someone you're not as familiar with in doubles. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly a challenge. Uh, and taken out by uh, Cerebes Tormo and Kristen Flipkins, I believe 6-2 in the third set. Bit of a an interesting parallel of styles. Cerebes Tormo, a very different player, but playing some good doubles there. Um, and so, yeah, tough result for Gabby, both in women's and, and mixed. Before we get to the men's side, I, I wanted to mention actually another veteran name just to watch for in this tournament who's kind of rolling along right now. Simona Halep opened 2022 with the title in Melbourne, only dropped one set there. And at the Australian Open through the first week, just very, very dominant. I understand she hasn't faced tough competition yet. And Elise Cornet is going to be the matchup um, shortly after this recording. But Halep, uh, yet to drop a set, yet to really be tested. Closest set was 6-4 against uh, Magdalena French. So um, she's in great, great form. And uh, we've seen her make a run to the finals of, in Australia before. So another threat and quick response for her uh, getting back to form uh, as she's healthy again in 2022. Yeah, and Halep, as you mentioned, such a close final uh, four years ago now already against Caroline Wozniacki. Right. Um, would love to add the Aussie Open to her collection of slams. And uh, I just don't know if she's had enough match play, to be honest. As you mentioned, hasn't been tested too difficultly yet in terms of quality of opponents. Um, but she's in that section with uh, Sabalenka as we speak. So who knows? And up against Cornet, my goodness, she's been around for quite some time. And another, you know, consistent, underrated uh, performer, um, the, the French woman. So should be a good one. Halep's favorite on, on paper, of course, uh, and has a nice section of the draw. So it wouldn't surprise me, but at the same point, I just don't get those vibes yet, but I'd love to be proven wrong once again here. Yeah, we'll see. Igus Viantek uh, giving me very, very good vibes as well. She's playing uh, fantastic, fantastic tennis. We hadn't seen this level of tennis from her, I don't think, at a hard court slam. So it's nice to see. And uh, she'll have an opportunity on that bottom half of the draw as well. Uh, you're listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'll mention Rebecca Marino did qualify for this event, then lost to Marie Boskova in the first round. Uh, we'll shift over to the men's side and what's transpired there through week one. Certainly some surprises, I would say, but in terms of, you know, the standout guys um, and, and the names we were probably choosing to win this tournament, Rafael Nadal, Daniel Medvedev are still alive. I think the place, though, to start is uh, Canadian tennis shop of all of. Well, I just love the fact that we've got two Canadians left in the men's draw and they are both looking so strong up to this point. Um it's tough for us to know when to record because the two of them have been doing so well and playing on opposite nights, which is like, you know, sort of pros and cons, right? Like it's great. They're not playing at the same time and we have to pick which one to watch, but the fact that they're playing every opposite night means we got to stay up late, or I should say you in particular, Ben need to stay up late to catch these matches. Um, and it also means that when we go to 
record? Oh, do we record after a Chapo win or do we wait for a Felix win? Or when do we pull the trigger? And I think we both uh, made the right call to delay 24 hours because Chapo got that huge win in straight sets over Alexander Zverev. Gives us plenty to talk about right now. Yeah, just a, an enormous win. Really a, a wonderful performance, particularly from the back of the court. I think he struck 36 winners in the victory. And, uh, you know, he said right after the the match in the post-match interview, if you're looking at his first four matches of this tournament, this the, this was the one that was least likely in his mind to be a three-set match. He went five sets with a Kwon Soon Woo of Korea. He had a, a long four-setter with Laszlo Jera, but it's the world number three that he dispatches 6-3, 7-6, 6-3, and just completely outplayed him. Um, you know, Zverev had an opportunity to get back in it. He was up a break in the second set and maybe had a chance to close, but uh, Dennis really stuck, you know, to a very clear, concise game plan. He was patient. He was aggressive when he had to be getting to net. He served well, despite 10 double faults. When the serve was clicking and going in, Zverev had all sorts of trouble returning it. And just a a wonderful performance and another Grand Slam run from Dennis. You know, we talk about his inconsistency at times in terms of tournament play on the ATP schedule. He's becoming a pretty consistent force in terms of the grand slams to me. Yeah, it's absolutely true. He's starting to put it together. And over the years, we've talked about how, you know, some flashy results here and there, but where is the consistency? The consistency is now starting to appear. And I think that ATP cup victory at the start of January with his buddy, Felix Ogieliasin was just great for both of them to have that confidence to start the new year against some tough opponents, Uh, an unexpected victory, I would say for Canada And they're building on that, um, which is what we hoped. And we talked about that in one of our earlier episodes, that they would take that to transition to some success here at the first slam of the year. And they're both doing it. And, uh, you know, I take a little bit of satisfaction in seeing a guy like Zverev, who's got a little bit too much bravado for my liking in terms of talking about things like being in the new big three, as if such a thing even exists at this point in time. Um, you know, show us that consistency at the slams first there, Sasha, and then maybe, you know, people can, can buy into what you're selling, but, uh, for Chapo, this is terrific. It's going to set up a blockbuster against Rafa Nadal in the next round. And, uh, look, things have worked out nicely for Rafa as well. Djokovic not being in his half of the draw, um, clearly, uh, as he was not allowed to participate and remain in Melbourne. Now facing Shapovalov, which is not a slight against Dennis, but we all kind of expected it would be Zverev in there. Um, I think that might work to Rafa's favor as well. And we're going to have the lefty versus lefty. And uh, it's hard to believe we're coming up this summer on the five-year anniversary of their famous first encounter in Montreal at the Rogers Cup back then. Yeah, and incredibly, he was asked about uh, that match in, in Montreal in 2017. Rafa was after his uh, win over Adrian Manorino in the fourth round. And he had a pretty clear memory of it. Uh, he often seems to have a good memory when it comes to tennis matches um, in terms of calling it a tough one for himself, because at the time, the world number one was on the line. He could make a return to world number one if he had uh, progressed in that tournament. Ended up getting it anyway, because Roger Federer also lost in that tournament, actually to Sasha Zverev, who went, uh, who actually beat him in the final. Uh, but Nadal said he felt back then, then he was a special player with incredible potential, amazing shots. Twice he said in his press conference, he thought Dennis could be a multiple Grand Slam champion, which I I thought was uh, quite uh, unbelievable to hear. I don't think he uses those words with with just anyone either. I I think he truly means it. And these guys also trained recently in in Abu Dhabi. They played an exhibition there. I don't know if you can put 
too much stock in Dennis beating him in a best of three exp- uh, exhibition at the time when Nadal was really just kind of making a return, easing into it. The match I'm looking to to maybe put stock in Dennis having a good chance here is Rome last year. Dennis leading, um, you know, 6 3 4 1 on Nadal's preferred surface clay, nearly beating him on clay and losing 7-6 in the third. I think you should have a lot of confidence from that, to be honest. Yeah, oh my God, that match. I'm having a flashback to watching that one slowly slip away from Dennis, (laughs) unfortunately. But uh, yeah, hey, look, even in that first set Rafa had against uh, Manorino, uh, that went to a pretty epic tiebreak. Uh, John McEnroe Unbelie- said it was unbelievable one of the, the top tie 10 tiebreaks that he'd ever seen. So for McEnroe to say that was pretty incredible, but it kind of went back and forth with both of them having opportunities to close it out. Ended up Rafa took it 16-14 and never looked back from, from there. But uh, yeah, he could be susceptible at this point. And, um, and Dennis is just looking so strong, so consistent. He's really harnessing that explosiveness I feel like at this point which is something that we've hoped he would be able to do um who are some other names that you've been following uh, up to this point that have impressed you Ben I think before we uh go to the bottom half and and talk about Daniil Medvedev I I want to give credit to Matteo Berrettini um he's now reached quarterfinals at all four of the Grand Slams of course he had the Wimbledon final last year uh, he lost in the quarterfinals at the French Open last year to Novak Djokovic. Djokovic beating him in two slams last season, actually. So that's a real mark of consistency for a top 10 player across all surfaces that I think maybe you see Matteo's big, big game and that that huge serve plus the big forehand, the Italian hammer. And you're thinking, OK, his tennis is going to be best on fast surfaces. But, um, you know, he, He's an all-court player. He's very impressive. He beats all the guys who are below him. He won this five-set epic against Carlos Alcaraz and now uh, awaits a showdown with Gael Monfils. So there's a great opportunity for Berrettini, I think, to be in a semifinal here. Um, He would get the winner of Nadal and Dennis if he does beat Monfils. And then I I don't know that a title is in store. You'd think could you possibly back-to-back beat a Nadal and Medvedev? That seems like too tall an order, but uh, the Italian playing really impressive tennis, so shout out to him. Also, I'll give credit to uh, Taylor Fritz playing great tennis, making his first uh, fourth round of his career, won a five-set epic against uh, my dark horse pick, which didn't fully come through, Roberto Bautista Agut. That's okay. RBA will do you some solids later on in the season, I'm sure. <laughs> And Berrettini, yeah, not just for the, you know, the fourth, uh, or sorry, quarterfinals now at all slams, but fourth in a row, fourth straight slam quarterfinal yeah. or better, which is uh, super, super impressive. And uh, for me, uh, you know, the man he's going to meet next, Gael Monfils, um, he's consolidated on a strong start to the season. And I'm surprised that he's into the quarterfinals of the Aussie Open for only the second time out of 17 career appearances. You would have thought that, mm-hmm. A guy as talented as Monfils would have been there before, um, but he's playing the best tennis, uh, you know, arguably of of his life at the age of 35. And uh, again, just one of those performers that one day will be so sad to see go because there's very few players out there that can entertain the way that uh, Monfils can. Yeah, such a such a terrific comeback to the to the start of the season for him uh, and carrying it over from from winning a title uh, just a couple of weeks ago to play this well at the Australian Open is is wonderful to see. I'm I'm honestly really happy for him. Um, this is a, a very curious round of 16 match. It's weird to preview it because probably when you listen to this podcast, the match will be over. And I'm hopeful Felix Ojeda Yassim can join Denis Shapovalov in the quarterfinals. 
he's facing Marin Chilich, who seems to be enjoying a resurgence here. Knocked off Andre Rublev with a great performance, beating him in four sets to make the round of 16. He was a finalist here in 2018. The thing that concerns me about this match, Chilich leads their head-to-head 3 nothing. Yeah, I was shocked when I saw that. I was looking it up because to me, when I think about it on paper and just the age difference, and Chilich is what, like 33, but he's like an older 33, I feel like in some yep. ways. And uh, and I thought, oh yeah, Felix is playing so well. This is going to be great, and, and maybe it will be. But I looked at that head-to-head, and yeah, Chilich has beat him. Uh, he leads 3-0, as you said, and that's three consecutive years. Last year was uh, in Stuttgart on grass and straight sets. Yeah, the, the final. The score was, was indoor hard uh, at the ATP Paris Masters, um, and Chilich bageled him in the first set. And then 2019, okay, we're going back a bit, but that was a straight set win in D.C. So... Uh, Chilich probably feels as confident as he could be in this position, but Felix to me seems like a different player so far this season. There's just an added confidence to him and belief. And uh, so I'm still picking Felix to come through this one, but I think it'll be tougher than I might've originally anticipated. Yeah. And, and look, Felix came through a really, really tough opening round against Emil uh, Ruzavori of Finland, who I must say plays at such a higher level than his ranking, which is around 90. He really hits the ball incredibly hard. Um, came through that in five sets, had another tough four setter in the second round. And then um, for him to beat Dan Evans in the fashion he did those six, four, six, one, six, one Evans beat him in a title in Australia. Actually last season, he played really well at ATP cup. It looks like it looked like Evans was in really good form going into the match. So I think that was like a really quality result for him. Evans can be a tricky player. I didn't think it would be that easy for Felix. Um, you're hopeful he can gain momentum from that at the same time. Chilich coming off probably his best match of the season, beating Andre Rublev. So that match for me is a pick him. And uh, of course, maybe when you listen to this, you'll know the results. We should talk about uh, Daniil Medvedev. And for me, He's still the favorite to win this tournament. And I I feel like he's going to pick up steam after the first week because he survived um, not only Nick, a heavily inspired Nick Kyrgios, but an incredibly rowdy uh, Aussie crowd in their second round match, uh, beating him in four sets. If you had a chance to watch this match, the atmosphere was absolutely electric. They were doing the Ronaldo chant of Sue, which sounds like boo. It was happening between first and second serves for Danil. was driving him crazy but he he managed to um you know contain those demons that, that were the crowd and and somehow fight through this four set match and actually curios after the match said he thinks right now medvedev is the best player in the world on hard yeah, it's hard hard to argue with that too and i mean a couple of things here one is medvedev thrives on those kind of conditions he loves being the villain or the bad guy or upsetting the local. I mean, look at how he thrived at the U S open a couple of years yep. ago when the crowd was against him. And gosh, I love this because he's the villain, but he's not really a villain. Like he's a likable villain, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I can definitely get behind that um, thoughts as well on curios who at this stage, I think it's less and less likely he's ever going to be able to put it together to become a, a consistent presence at the top of the men's game, but you know that he could, cause he's got the talent it's just between the ears and that doesn't seem unfortunately to me to have gotten any stronger or more consistent over the years. Um, So we did look forward to this one and it didn't really disappoint, but you just also were left thinking what, what a waste in terms of what Nick could accomplish or could have done throughout his career to this point, if he would just dedicate himself a little bit more to this, this craft of his. 
Yeah, you see the level he's playing at in that match against the world number two, and you're like, my my goodness, like we've seen this before too. You see him battling Nadal at, at Wimbledon at the Australian Open. You see, you know, he's beaten Roger Federer before. He's beaten Novak Djokovic twice. It's like he has to face the the marquee top 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 players to bring it out of him. Um, I should mention him and Tanasi Kokonakis have been on one incredible run in doubles as well, and they toppled the number one seed in the second round. Insane crowd there as well. There was drama afterwards. Apparently, the uh, fitness trainer for uh, Matty Pavic, I believe, uh, confronted Nick Kyrgios and Kokonakis in the locker room because uh, Kyrgios hit a ball at one of them during a point, which I kind of think is fair game, especially in doubles. Anyway, they were a little salty about that loss. I could I could see why, but uh, they're kind of riding a high right now uh, from the crowd in Melbourne. So we'll see how far they get uh, in doubles. Put that Curious. doubles on. Put that doubles on the the main court, though. Put those doubles matches on. Yeah, you know, they're like, they've been unbelievable. On. You talk about wanting to promote the sport, promote doubles, and it seems like there's very little support from the actual ATP in terms of their social media pumping up of the doubles brand. And and here you've got a, a local favorite, someone who gets the crowd riled up no matter where he plays, let alone in Melbourne. Put them on the big one, put them on Laver, put them on Margaret Court, put them on the biggest venue you possibly can and pack that place as much as COVID and the pandemic will allow and put it on TV too, because that's what's going to draw people to the doubles game is, is a match like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. Uh, I'm recalling at the start of the tournament, I picked a Medvedev versus Nadal final and Medvedev winning the title. Did you have the same final and then you had Rafa? I mean, I've forgotten, but I know I picked Rafa because <laughs> that's at least in, you know, I can't hide from that pick, nor do right. I want to. Right. I'm feeling it more and more. And I think with Djokovic away and with Nadal making second week, he's got extra motivation to go for number 21 here, maybe 22 in Roland Garros. And then he's really starting to uh, put a little distance between himself and his Serbian um, uh, counterpart there. But um, I, I forget who I, I must have picked Medvedev. I think I think, I, think so. I, I allowed I allowed the rest of you to pick Medvedev as the winner, and I went with Nadal. But I, I of course, it seems pretty likely that uh, Danil, the way he's playing, is going to be the one potentially facing him there. Who knows? We'll find out in a week just how right or wrong we were, I guess, and and tennis fans everywhere as well. But looking forward to a, a solid second week here at the major, and uh, hasn't disappointed so far for for my point of view. No, no, I've, I've loved it. Stefano Tsitsipas, by the way, is flying incredibly under the radar. He's a guy nobody's really talking about right now. He has the number four next to his name. And uh, if he's healthy, maybe he's a threat as well. That could be a potential semifinal with uh, Danil Medvedev. We're hoping when you listen to this, we have Felix Ojealiasim joining Denis Shapovalov into the quarterfinals. If he does, he'll become the fourth Canadian ever to do so in men's singles in the open era, joining Denis Milos Braunich and one other their name mike belkin i believe from 1968 i hope i got that correct i hope i didn't botch his name with tom tebbett if if that's right (laughs) i think uh, christopher clary was uh posting that trivia actually just the other night um guys thank you so much for listening to match point canada thanks to our guest daniela hantukova we will talk to you next time enjoy the rest of melbourne